Romans chapter 2. We continue our study through the book of Romans, a letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Rome, a place that he had never visited at the time of writing the letters. Knew a few of the people that were there, but not many. And we've discussed the fact that Paul's, Paul's driving motivation was a, was a love for the people and a passion for the truth and the gospel of God. We see that the theme of the letter that is outlined for us in chapter one, where he says he speaks of the gospel of God. For in the gospel of God, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then as we've pointed out and been looking at the last several weeks, in verse 18, Paul says of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then from that moment up and through where we are today and continuing on into about halfway through chapter 3, Paul outlines for us those who stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. Because he's, he's doing this to outline the fact that, okay, he said the gospel of God is for salvation for everyone who believes, but saved from what? Why do we need salvation? And the truth of the matter is we all stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. And he starts taking every group apart piece by piece. We saw right after chapter 18, 19 and following, he starts addressing those that are in the world that know of God because he's made it evident to everyone, but those who reject him outright. We talked last week as we got into chapter 2, the interesting transition of the pronouns. He was talking about they and them, and then as we start chapter 2, he starts saying you. Starts speaking now directly to those that are a part of those that are reading the letter, and perhaps those that, that carry with it this idea of some self-righteousness, that somehow because of who they are and in their own, their own moral goodness are better than others. And he addressed that last week. But now it takes another interesting turn as we look now starting in verse 17. Paul now addressed the, addresses those who are going to be hearing this letter, those that are Jewish. And we, let's look at this together. Now let's read through the, the whole section and then we'll come back and look at it. Starting in verse 17 through the end of the chapter, Paul says, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are transgressor of the law? 
For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is one of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Paul turns his attention to those, and in the context of what we look at here, to those who were born Jewish those who were, who were descendants of Abraham, who could trace their, their, their lineage back to him, Jewish people, and in that they somehow are drawing this false sense of security simply because they're Jewish and have followed the covenant of circumcision that somehow they are completely okay with God regardless of anything else. Now, we, we look at this and we say, you know, we, we do understand, the Bible is clear, very clear, the Jewish people are God's chosen people. But God is also very clear. He did not choose them because they were somehow better looking or more talented or richer or anything else other than any other people. It's simply because God chose them. As a matter of fact, he goes to the point of saying, I didn't choose you because you were somehow mightier and greater than any other nation. As a matter of fact, you were the smallest of nations, drawing us all the way back to you were a nation of one when I chose you. Abraham. And made the covenant there with Abraham. But then he goes on to talk about this, Paul. You were entrusted with the law. You were given God's word. And given the word to you to protect it, to watch over it, to share it, to obey it. The problem was they embraced the first part, but they took a lot of pride in that. God gave it to us. It's ours. We're the stewards of it. We'll teach it. We'll share it. We'll tell everybody but they became a source of pride for them, so much so that it drove others away. So much so that it became such an element of pride for them, they looked at anybody who was non-Jewish, a Gentile, to the point where they even, some of the leaders taught them that they were referred to as dogs, Gentile dogs. And their only purpose in, in existence was to keep hell hot, <laughs> to be the fuel for hell. Totally missing, again, God's heart and God's plan and desire for them and also missing the most important part of why God gave them the law and his word to begin with and that's to obey it. There's a word that is used to describe someone who knows and teaches and tells others to do something but doesn't do it themselves. You know what that word is? Hypocrite, right? Now, that's that word, it just, even, even saying it, hearing it, right? It just kind of makes you go, hmm, a little bit, right? It's just got that edge to it, hypocrite. <laughs> Bottom line, guys, it's re religion without reality. There's nothing behind it. It is something that is stated. It is something that is proclaimed, but not lived out. And that, that word hypocrite is used in the New Testament 17 times. And, and Jesus uses it in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew 23 to speak of the actions of people. And we looked at a little bit of this last time. Those that would judge others by a different standard that they judge, than they judge themselves. Those that magnify sin in other people while minimizing it in their own lives. Basically talking the talk without walking the walk. Even so much so, and as Paul addresses it in verse 29, doing things so that man recognizes for the praise of man and ignoring the praise of God. Jesus addresses that in Matthew chapter 6, calling three different groups or three people that would do certain things for the, for the recognition of man as opposed to God. He talked about if you pray, 
out loud and in such a manner that people look at you and go, wow, man, that guy, that is one holy fella. <laughs> Drawing praise from them, not praying to God, but to impress. Fasting, another thing that he said. If you, I mean, if you make yourself look all, ooh, you know, and everybody's like, wow, you're doing that. Wow, you are holy. <laughs> Instead of, again, doing, Jesus said, do it secretly so that nobody knows that you're doing that. You're doing that to seek God and to seek his face. That'll, anything outside of that, he calls him a hypocrite. Giving, tithing, all of those types of things. Doing that to gain the praise of man. Jesus says, you better enjoy that praise because that's all you get. But if you want the praise of Almighty God, you do it with the right heart. The law that was given to them, but they didn't obey it. He also touches here on the covenant that was made with them. Circumcision. Moving from religion without reality, circumcision became a ritual without reality to them. You see, this, the this, the. The covenant of circumcision that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17, it was the mark that he was to all of the male children following after him as they were saying, we are setting ourselves apart for God. This is a, 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 something that we are doing to show that we are in covenant with you, God. But it wasn't about the outward act. It wasn't on the physical practice. The focus wasn't to be there. It was, it was supposed to be on the spiritual significance. The outward action without an inward change is absolutely meaningless. God says as much in Jeremiah chapter 9. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and of Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised. Note, of heart. Physically circumcised, yes, but uncircumcised because your heart hasn't been circumcised. Your heart isn't mine, God says. Now, a couple of errors I believe that we can make when we, when we look at this section right here. First, one of the big glaring errors is there have been many who have taken this section, specifically verses 28 and 29, where it speaks of one is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and taking that and twisting it into what is commonly referred to as replacement theology. That is saying that the covenant really isn't anymore with the Jewish people, that it is with the church. And the church has replaced the Jewish people as God's chosen people. Guys, that couldn't be further from the truth according to God's word. The Jewish people are, have been, and always will be God's chosen people. It's interesting how you can take verses 28 and 29 and build a doctrine or a theology on it and not realize that Paul didn't stop there. As a matter of fact, there's no chapter break when he wrote the letter. Read verse, two, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, following right on the heels. Then what advantage has the Jew or what benefit is the circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. It's not dismissing the, the facts at all. His whole point was to draw the fact that you have been incredibly blessed as God's people, yet you are not walking in that blessing. As a matter of fact, when we get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul makes it very clear that God is not done with the Jewish people. So much so, if we go back to the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, 
This is the wording that God uses. He says this to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to God, to, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. An everlasting covenant. So when does an everlasting covenant end? It doesn't. <laughs> So that is obviously one danger that, that has, people have fallen into. But I think for our, for our purposes today, one of the other things that, we can, that, that is a danger in just reading through this is we can miss what it's saying to us. I don't know how many of you checked out right away when it says, now, if, if you be calling yourself a Jew, saying, well, I'm not Jewish, okay. <laughs> we could write that, we could just say, all right, and we could dismiss that. The other danger is that we can then focus on the, the latter part of what we read, and that's on the hypocrisy and the, and the ritual instead of the reality and miss what is between the, verse 17 and verse 24 when it starts going into that. When we look at chapter 11, when we get there, we see this amazing truth. We as the church... The born-again believers in the Lord Jesus, the church today, are not a separate tree that God said, okay, here's what I planted, the Jews, and they're, they're not fulfilling everything, so I'm going to plant a separate tree over here, and that's the church. No, it's very clear that we, as the church, are grafted in that, into the tree that is the Jewish people. We become part of that. And with that as the understanding, as we look at this, we can replace that word today in, for us, but if you bear the name of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, and as we then look at, and, and let's break apart these few verses here at the beginning, verse 17 and 18 tells us the amazing benefits and privileges that are ours because we are Christians, because we bear the name of Christ. First of all, as we begin looking at this, the word if that is there that is used is in the first class conditional statement, which if you want to know what that is more in detail, sign up for the Greek class. But basically what it says in that, what it carries with it is the connotation that what follows is assumed to be true. So you could insert the word since in there. Since you are a Christian, since you bear the name of Christ, notice the first thing he says. Since you bear the name Christ and rely upon the law, as Christians, we can do something that the rest of the world can't. We can lean completely on the word of God. We can rely on the word of God. We can set our hope in the word of God. The rest of the world who does not have this relationship with God can't do that. We know, too, that when he's speaking of the law there to the Jewish people, he's speaking of the, the law that was given, the Ten Commandments, that goes way beyond that. The Psalms, the Proverbs, the prophets, all of that constituting what the Jewish people embrace as that. But it goes even beyond that for us as Christians, as the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appeared, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The Lord Jesus speaking to us as Christians, 
bearing witness in our hearts. Christ in us, the hope of glory. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking again now this amazing truth that we not only have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, and we have Christ in us. This hope that we have, the assurance that we have, that the author of Hebrews refers to as the anchor for our soul. In Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We as Christians, again, the assurance of things hoped for, faith. Faith is only as good as the object of your faith. Your faith can only take you so far as the object of what you put your faith in. And as we discussed when we were going through chapter 11, the world has placed their faith in this idea of evolution, which, by the way, no matter what they try to tell you, requires great faith. Far more faith than I have. (laughs) Faith is only as good as the object of our faith. And in that, again, the author of Hebrews tells us as Christians, it is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He goes on to say in chapter 6 of Hebrews, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God being the The object of our faith, the author of Hebrews tells us again, this blessing that is ours because we are Christians, our God, it is impossible for him to lie. It's not that God chooses not to lie. It's not like God every once in a while comes up with this, you know what, I could tell him this, or I could tell him this. This is is true, this is the reality. This would be kind of funny if I played this little, yeah, you know what though, I'm I'm gonna tell him the truth. God can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. It's also impossible for God to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The unchangeableness of our God. It is impossible for God to make a mistake. Oops is not in God's vocabulary. He's never said that. That is such a great thing that we can hold on to in our faith in him. That we can rely and we can lean on his word because he never makes a mistake. Did you, has it ever dawned on you that nothing ever dawns on God? It's not like, whoa, didn't see that coming. Or, wow, oops, it, nothing, that never happens. That is the one who we place our faith in. That is the one who we can trust. Nothing takes him off guard. Nothing is out of his control. If you bear the name Christian, you can rely on God's word. Notice also, and boast in God. As Christians, we can boast in God. The rest of the world, the best thing they can do is boast in themselves. And I don't know about you, but I'm getting sick and tired of every time I turn on the TV, it just seems like that's everywhere. Just, you know, look how smart I am. Look how rich I am. Look how powerful I am. 
The problem with boasting in yourself is there's always somebody richer, always somebody smarter, always somebody more powerful than you are. And the only way that you can somehow keep going in that is to undermine them and to undercut them. And it's just so, it's so disgusting. Wouldn't it be so much greater to boast in something far greater than yourself? And we as Christians are the only ones who can do that. We can boast in God. I read to you a little bit earlier, Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26. Immediately preceding that, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah says this, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness justice and righteousness on the earth for I delight in these things declares the Lord again God he he delights in in sharing in revealing himself to us only we as Christians can understand him and know him never fully but we can understand we can know and God says boast in that Paul picks that up, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can flip over there real quickly. Keep your finger here in Romans 2. The next book over, 1 Corinthians. Paul picks up this idea in chapter 1, beginning in verse 25. He says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that, verse 29, no man may boast before God. But, verse 30, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, verse 31, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, 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 I love that. Because I don't want to boast in my strength and in my wisdom, but because of Christ Jesus, I can boast in his The ultimate example of my dad is bigger and stronger and smarter than your dad. I can boast in my heavenly father because he watches over me, because he takes care of me. And continuing on, verse verse 18, and know his will. It's his desire that we know his will. Almighty creator God, whose ways are so past our full understanding, whose ways are as high as the heavens are above the earth, greater than ours. He desires us to know his will. God's will has has several aspects to it. First of all, he is a sovereign God. He has a sovereign prevailing will that nothing can change, that nothing can thwart. And praise God for that (laughs) because our eternity is secure because of that. But in God's sovereign, prevailing will, he also has a permissive will where he gives you and I the freedom to choose. He gives us the freedom of choice, but also with that, the the consequences that come with those choices. 
Those things work together perfectly in his economy, his sovereignty and our free will. But in addition to that, he also has a very personal will for each and every one of us. So often we can lose sight of that in the big, in the big, the big size of everything that's going on around us, that almighty, eternal God has a personal will for you. He knew about you before you were formed in your mother's womb. He has a very personal, passionate will for each one of us. And it is his desire that we would seek him about that, that we would follow him as he leads us in that. And he goes on to tell us that, that and to know his will and approve the things that are essential. That means to, again, to understand, to embrace the things that are excellent, the things that are best. Did you know that God's will for you is the best for you? What God desires for you is the very best thing that could happen to you. It is what you would ask for if you had enough sense to ask for it. And he desires to reveal it. What is saying here that to approve the things that are excellent, it doesn't, not only to know what his will is, but know and to be equipped on how to do it. Paul writes to the church in Philippi in chapter one of Philippians, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. <laughs> we get enough fake knowledge around, right? Fake news, whatever. <laughs> real knowledge. God desires to reveal to us his truth, real knowledge, and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We can rely on on his word. We can boast in God. We can know his will. We can approve the things that are excellent. Being instructed again out of his word. This living word that is ours, guiding us, leading us, directing us. As we step in faith, as we walk, the psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We, we take the word of God, we read it, we study it, we meditate on it, we pray through it. God, show me your will, reveal to me, and he illuminates our steps. But unlike walking down a, a dark path today when we could pull out a, you know, a million candle power flashlight and flash it down and see a mile down the path, when David wrote that, he had a one candle power candle as he's walking and talking about, okay, your word is a light to the path. It lights the next step and the next step. And the next step, and as we walk in faith and we follow along a God again, as we said at the beginning, that we can completely trust because he never makes a mistake, because he is all-knowing, because he is all-powerful. We can trust that whatever is down that path, I don't need to see right now. Probably better that I don't because I'm not prepared to see what's down there yet. But by the time I get there, and if I keep walking and I keep allowing this process to happen within me, when I get there, I'll be ready. That's how God is. And that's how this works. And guys, that is exclusive to us as Christians. No one else can say that. No one else can, no one else can own that, can embrace that. 
Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, note, equipped for every good work. Equipped, fully ready. When we get to that point, we will be ready for what is there. Paul, Paul speaks in these, these couple of verses again of these great benefits and privileges, but those, the privilege continues in verses 19 and 20 when he speaks of the responsibility that is also ours as Christians because these things have been given to us and entrusted to us. Notice verse 19, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. The definitive article, by the way, is there, the truth. Not a truth, the truth. That again, entrusted to us. We understand, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We understand that the living word of God is the truth. What says in here, what we hold in our hands is the truth. And armed with that, we have the responsibility to go out now and be a guide to the blind, to be a light to those who are in darkness. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. A light doesn't do any good if you stick it on a table and put a basket over the top of it. It only, it only does what it's supposed to do when it's placed in, the, in a dark room on a table so that it can light up the whole room. And that is what we are called to do. That's the responsibility we have to be the lights, to be the corrector of the foolish, the evangelism, taking this, this word that we have, this truth that we have out to a lost and dying world. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses and you will take my message to the remotest parts of the world. A teacher of the immature, speaking of those who do then come to faith but need to be discipled along, teaching, growing, walking alongside one another, encouraging, again, by the word of God, the truth of God. We have a responsibility to share it. We have a responsibility to guard it and protect it. Jude writes this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Contend earnestly, protect it, guard it. The word of God is under attack today. We understand that everywhere you turn from outside and unfortunately even from within the so-called church, the word of God under attack. It's up to us to guard it, to protect it, to share it. But just like the Jewish people, guys, that Paul's addressing here, we can never forget that we need to obey it. We need to obey it. We need to follow what God's word is. I'd love to say, you know, we can just cut this off right here and not, not go any further. Let's just, let's just bask in the blessing of all that is ours in this. And yes, we need to do that. But Paul's point to this was, guys, it's not enough to just camp there. The things that we've received, we need to obey this living word that is ours. It's not enough to just profess it. We need to live it. Just a little quick thing. Hey, John, can you tell me what's in that can? Fruit cocktail. Fruit cocktail. How do you know that? I read it on the side. You read it on the label. Yeah, you see, you know what? The problem with labels is they're only any good if they match what's on the inside of the can. 
chunky ground dinner. Dog food. <laughs> I was gonna, just for, just for to drive the point home a little bit more, have open up the can and have John come up and take a spoonful, but for the sake of time and John's stomach. Bottom line, guys, again, a label is only as good if it, if it reflects what is truly on the inside. And along with that, a label can be very dangerous if it doesn't really truly reflect what's on the inside. And that's what Paul goes on to say to those, those Jews in this letter and to us today. Because if we don't, we can drive people away. We can, we can push people away. Many people who don't believe, non-believers, will say the reason that they reject this whole idea of Christianity is Christians. It's they, they say, I, I see how Christians are. I see the way that they are, and I don't want to be any part of that. And if that's you here today, and you just happen to be here because you, you, know, you got invited or whatever, and you've been turned off because of the hypocrisy of, of other Christians, can I be the first one to say, I'm sorry? But please... Do not discount the message because of the messenger. Bottom line is we all hate hypocrisy. We all, we all hate that. Nobody hates it more than Jesus. But we also have to be careful that, again, we don't fall into the trap like we did last week and start judging hypocrisy in other people. I mentioned that the word hypocrite, the actual title, called somebody, somebody called a hypocrite. It only happens 17 times in the New Testament. Every one of them, Jesus was the one who said it. Paul never called anybody a hypocrite. Peter never called anybody a hypocrite. John never did. They refer to hypocrisy, but never singling out hypocrite. Jesus is the only one qualified to do that. That's never our job. But we do need to be careful, and we, we, and we have to make sure that we, again, don't gloss over this because of the importance, again, that we've been trusted with, that none of us, there's no area of hypocrisy in our own life. And Paul gives a list, and if, if we're, again, we're not careful, we can focus on that list. He says, you say, don't steal, but do you steal? Say, don't commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You say, don't, don't, don't have idols, but do you rob temples? Well, you could say, okay, well, I haven't stolen anything. I haven't committed adultery, and I'm not an idolater. Okay, good, pass on. <laughs> the whole point of all of those is we don't stop there. Do you come across and say, you know what? You shouldn't be angry. Are you angry? You shouldn't be bitter. Are you bitter? You know what? The Bible says that we don't have a spirit of fear as Christians. Do you have fear? See, again, it's so easy to say something to somebody else. In that situation, you shouldn't act this way. And yet, when the same thing happens to us, we respond in that same way. The Bible has a word for that. I won't say it. I'll let, I'll let the Lord deal with that in you. But guys, if there's any area of hypocrisy in our life, we need to deal with that because of the danger of it. The danger of driving those that are outside of the church away or causing, or causing a brother or sister in the body of Christ to stumble. I've, 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 I've seen it happen. People, people stumble, they struggle in their, in their walk because, because somebody told them that they're supposed to be acting a certain way and then they see them when the same situation happens to them, they act in a different way. 
It's so easy for us to say, you know, the, the, deal with all of that hypocrisy out there. The interesting part about the pronoun here that's used you, it's in the singular. It's plural in chapter one when he says, I can't wait to come and see you and come and share the gospel with you and everything. He's talking plural. When we're getting in chapter two here and the you is singular, it's personal. Is there any area in my life that needs to be dealt with? Because again, it's easy for us to look out in the other. Perhaps you've heard the story of the man who was deserted on, a, on an island all by himself for 20 years. And when they finally got there with the rescue team, they found him, they get there, they land on the beach, they're sitting there with him, they're giving him some food, and he's unloading, he's telling them everything that had been going on for the last 20 years. And they said, well, we noticed there's three huts up there on the beach. Can, can you tell us what those are? And he says, well, yeah, that one over there is my house, and that one over there is my church. They said, well, what's that one over there? And they said, well, that's the church I used to go to, but there's nothing but hypocrites there. <laughs> we need to take that personal, personal inventory. And just a real quick note, I mentioned baptism earlier. We have to be careful, too, that we never allow anything to become ritual in our lives without, you know, and lose the reality of it. We spoke of circumcision, and again, we could say, well, I'm not Jewish, and da-da-da, that's for them. Well, a good, a good parallel for that with us would be baptism, because circumcision didn't make somebody a Jew. Baptism does not make somebody a Christian. Somebody is born Jewish and therefore following the directive to be circumcised and the symbolism that is there that says, I am setting my life apart. Same thing with baptism. You're born again now into the family of God following the command of Jesus that says to be baptized. But we don't be we're not baptized because it's a command. We're baptized to identify ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that should be evidenced by the new life that is in each and every one of us. Again, if you have never been baptized, I encourage you to sign up and to be baptized. Not because it's commanded, not because it's a ritual, but because you are a new creation in Christ because you want to publicly identify yourself that way and to show the world, again, the changed life that is in you. Can I mention the you being singular here? And so as we, as we close this morning, I want to read verses 17 through 29 to you from the Banup translation. How many, did anybody have that translation, the Benup translation? You ever heard of that? No? Well, that's Brett's unauthorized, non-standardized, unrevised, personalized version. Since I bear the name of Christ, calling myself a Christian, I have hope as an anchor for my soul. I boast in the Lord alone, nothing of myself. I know his will and embrace his best as he reveals it to me by his spirit and through his word. I know that he has chosen me and appointed me to be his witness, to bear fruit that lasts, being salt and light in the world today, to share the gospel to the lost and disciple the young in the faith with knowledge of the truth of God's word. Is there any hypocritical thing in my life? 
anything that dishonors the holy name of my king? Is there anything that could cause a non-believer to turn away or a brother or sister to stumble? Do I rely on anything that I do not earn? I'm sorry, do I rely on anything that I do to earn favor with God? Or do I completely lean on Jesus and his grace extended to me? Do I seek praise from men or from Almighty God alone? Would you please stand? Pray with me. We prepare our hearts for communion today. That as we do that, let's, let's do a couple of things. As we, as we sing this song in worship, as the, as the ushers will distribute the elements during this song, as we do, let's go before God and praise him for all of the things that are ours because we bear the name of Christ, because we are Christians. And we know that we are Christians because of what Jesus did for us. That's what we celebrate in communion. So let this be a time of, of celebration, but let it also be a time of reflection. And let God do the searching in us. And if there's anything, anything hypocritical in our life, anything that, that, doesn't, that doesn't honor him in our life, let's, let's put that down at the cross. Because again, we celebrate what happened and who we are because of the cross when we celebrate communion. So if there's anything that needs to be brought there, the Bible says if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Cleanse you. So let's go before God today. Worship him and bring our hearts before him. Let him, let him do, do some business with us today as we worship him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. And God, as we spent just a little time here, talking about just, just a few of the elements that are ours because of who you are and because of who we are in you, because we bear your name. Lord God, we worship you and we give you all praise. You alone are worthy of our praise. But Lord, we also want to represent you well. We want to be able to boldly say to the world, you want proof of the gospel? You want proof of the grace of God? Look at me. Because when they look at us, God, they see you. And if there's anything that might stand in the way of that, God, we want to deal with that right now. If you're here today and you've never taken the step of making Jesus Lord of your life, you've never accepted him as your savior. It's a matter right now of responding to the Holy Spirit, speaking to your heart. And you just say, God, I know that I am a sinner. I'm a hypocrite like everybody else. So I ask you right now to come into my life. Forgive my sin. Give me that gift of eternal life. I know I can't do it myself, but Jesus, I believe you paid it all for me. So right now, I make that decision. I declare you as Lord of my life. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you together this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.